I most definitely hope you do have your Bibles. Maybe more so than other Sundays. I don't think I could say that. I always hope you have your Bibles with you. But you are going to be lost if you didn't bring your Bibles this morning. Uh, So turn with me in your Bibles to page one. Isn't it great? Right? It's about the only Sunday that I can say, turn to page one, and I don't have to make sure we all have the same Bible. Just turn to page one. Get past all of the beginning stuff. You know what I mean, the table of contents and that. Get to page one of the actual Bible. If you like, there's an outline on the back of the bulletin. Feel free to follow along if you wish. It began just about under nine months ago when we opened our Bibles to page one and began with the first sentence, which reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We began our walk through Genesis by watching as God literally spoke the world into existence. Let there be light. Let there be an expanse. Let the waters be gathered together into one place. Let the earth sprout vegetation. Let there be lights in the expanse. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. Now at this point, it's day six. Yes, day six. Six literal 24-hour days had passed, and actually we're in the sixth day. And at this point, everything so far is good, but it's not yet very good. Before God's creation is said to be very good, and before God rests from his creating work, he has one last thing to do. Namely, God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Man, the pinnacle of God's creating work. Created in his own image for his own glory. And he puts man in a garden. This is a place with every provision. It's a place with luscious fruit to eat. It is a place of utter and imaginable beauty. And above all, And most importantly, it is a place where man can enjoy the perfect presence of God and experience a perfect relationship in perfect harmony with his maker. It is paradise. But sadly, it would not last. And we get to Genesis 3. God had put Adam and Eve in the garden. He had set clear parameters for living in the garden. Basically, it was this. Submit to the lordship of your creator. He says in verse 16 of chapter 2, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely Die. That's pretty straightforward, you don't think? It's not a long list of things. It's just one simple thing, right? Submit to the lordship of God. Eat of every tree in the garden, but don't eat of that tree. Now, how long Adam and Eve enjoyed life in the garden in perfect, joyful submission to God, I do not know. 
But what I do know is that on one day, Satan entered the garden in the form of a serpent. And he whispered lies into the heart and mind of Eve, who then whispered those lies into the heart and mind of her husband. And on that day, man, our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to be the Lord of their own lives. They willfully disobeyed God. And thus, as Paul tells us, at that moment, sin and death entered into the world. Now, it was also on that day that God delivered punishment upon Adam and Eve, but first he delivered his punishment upon the devil, Satan. And here in Genesis 3.15, we find those words that God spoke to Satan, and we find something we must not miss. If we miss this, we'll miss the whole rest of the point of the book of Genesis and the entire Bible, for that matter. And this is what God said to Satan. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In the midst of disobedience and shame and punishment, God speaks a word of hope to his people. He says, a seed of the woman will come. A seed of the woman will come. His heel will be struck by Satan. His heel will be struck by Satan. Now, when you get struck in the heel, you get knocked down. But you don't get knocked out. And so uh, this, the devil, Satan, will knock down the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman will get up. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman will destroy the enemy of God and humankind. The seed of the woman will take the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, who had deceived them, and throw him into the lake of fire and sulfur where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever, according to Revelation 20, verses 2 and 10. The seed of the woman would do that. The anointed one of God, the Messiah. From the first willful act of disobedience and the entrance of sin and death into the world, man has had one hope and one hope only, and that is in the one that God would send, the seed of the woman. But the question remains, which seed of the woman? And thus it begins, looking for the Messiah. Now that takes us to Genesis chapter 4. And again, I'm not specifically reading the verses, but I want you to follow along. So if you've got your Bibles right now, well, I'm on page 4. And Genesis 4, I don't know what page you're on, but we're just a few from the beginning. We get to Genesis 4. The narrative continues with the seed of the woman. We've been told that a seed of the woman will be sent. And the first thing we read in Genesis 4, no Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. There is a, a seed. And then she had another child, Abel. And we begin to ask, well, I wonder who it is. Is, is the Messiah Cain or is it Abel? But it's neither Cain nor Abel, because Cain murders Abel, so it clearly can't be Abel, and it most certainly can't be Cain, because Cain gave in to his sinful desires. So now, what do we do? Well, praise be to God, for Adam and Eve had another son, Seth. 
And it's a good thing because when you follow the line of Cain, you get to this guy named Lamech. And you know what Lamech's claim to fame is? He says, you know, Cain, that guy's bad. But I'm seven times badder than that dude. So we got no hope in Cain's line, but then Adam and Eve has another son in chapter 5, verse 4. And we see that his name is Seth. He fathers Seth, and he has other sons and daughters as well. Now, the other sons and daughters, along with Seth and his family, begin to fill the earth at that point. And sadly, the story of humankind doesn't get much better from Cain and Abel. Because as we find out when we get to Genesis 6, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of man was great, uh, sorry, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Well, we got a problem now. Where's the Messiah? No Messiah yet, and God's about to wipe out everybody on the earth. Everybody, actually, except for one. A descendant, you'll never guess of whom? Of Seth. And so we find in Genesis 5 and verse 28, and 29, that one came from the line of Seth, and his name was Noah. And it says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our works and from the painful toil of our hands. And in fact, that's what we find out, because while God is set to destroy all of mankind, he has determined in his mind to sustain Noah and Noah's family. And so he instructs Noah to build a very big boat and he sends a flood which wipes out everybody on the earth except for Noah and his family. And after the flood, God then begins to fill the earth again, starting from Noah and his three sons and their wives. And their, his sons are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now from that point, sadly again, things don't get much better because by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, we get to Genesis 11 and now we see humankind trying to build a tower and make a name for themselves. And so God is forced to scatter them over the earth. You see in Genesis 11 verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. What they were in fact supposed to have done already but they decided to stick together. And so God sends them out from there. And at that point, we are still looking for the Messiah. Now, this brings us to Genesis 12. At Genesis 12, there is a shift in the focus of the narrative. Genesis 1 through 11 covers the history of all of mankind. But in Genesis chapter 12, things get narrowed down to one point. So the search for the Messiah began first with the descendants of Eve and Seth and then Noah. And then following the Tower of Babel, we find another genealogy strategically placed. Do not, I repeat, do not ignore the genealogies in Scripture. Oh, I know the names are hard to pronounce, and I know sometimes it gets a little boring reading through them all, but do not ignore them. They are there for a reason, and we find that here in Genesis chapter 11, because after the flood, 
We read in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 11, these are the generations of Shem. Now, what's so important about Shem? Well, Shem came from Noah, right? And Noah came from Seth, and Seth came from Adam. We are still looking for the seed of the woman. So the, the genealogy begins with these are the generations of Shem, and it gets down to the end, and we read in verse 26, uh, we get to Terah. And it says, Terah had lived 70 years, and he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now then we get down to Genesis chapter 12, and here we read, well, who's it going to be? Is it going to be Abram, Nahor, or Haran? Who are we going to follow here? This is not a choose-your-own-adventure. We need to know for certain who we, are to, who we are to continue looking for the Messiah through. And so we get Genesis chapter 12, and Abram is out there minding his own business, worshiping the idols that his family had always worshipped, and he hears a voice from heaven, the voice of God, who says to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if in him all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, then clearly we can be sure that we're looking at the right place if we're looking for the Messiah in Abraham and his family. Now, the problem, of course, at this point is that Abram is really old. And his wife is really old. And so if, if God is going to make of Abram a great nation and Abram has no children and Abram's really old, there's a problem that's got to be solved. So Abram and his wife Sarah decide that they will solve this problem and that works out terribly. Good lesson for us. Whenever we think that we can work things out for God, forget about it. He'll work things out just fine. So, and he does, in fact, work things out just fine. Long story short, he blesses Abram and Sarah in their old age with a son, and his name is Isaac. Now, again, we have another problem, because Isaac is born to Abram and Sarah, and then God calls on Abram to sacrifice Isaac. So up on the mountain they go, and he builds the altar, and he puts Isaac on the altar, and he ties him down to the altar, restrains him, and lifts the knife, and is about to kill Isaac, the promised son, the one through whom the Messiah would come that would bless all the families of the earth. And at that moment, as he had always planned to do, God says, stop. And he provides a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. And so we continue on, and we find out that Abraham is trusting in God, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, but more importantly, we learn that God is faithful to his promise. Now, this brings us all the way to the end of Genesis 25. We're making our way through here. This is the drive-by Old Testament sighting here. So we get to Genesis 26 now. So, so God has now decided that of all of the earth, as he had always decided, there is humankind, all people, but he has now chosen a people for himself. He's chosen a people for himself. No longer does the scriptures focus on all of humankind. It focuses on one people that started from Abraham's family. So God has chosen a people for himself, and we see that all through Genesis 12 through 25. 
you know, we thought for a second, whoa, there wasn't going to be a people because he, they couldn't have a child, and then he's called to sacrifice Isaac. But no, God chooses a people for himself, and he will make of Abraham's family, of his line, a great nation. Genesis 12 through 25, a people chosen by God. But then we get to Genesis 26, and again, the focus shifts from Abraham now to Isaac, as we find out that not only does God choose a people for himself, but he provides a place for God's people. A place for God's people. Now, at this point in the story, Abraham and his family were living in Canaan, in the promised land. And Abraham dies, and Isaac decides to leave and go to Egypt. Now, why does Isaac decide to leave and go to Egypt? Because there's a famine in the land. That's another good study of famines. And so there's a famine in the land, and Isaac decides to leave. But yet again, as he had done with his father, God speaks to Isaac. Now here we are at Genesis 26. So I hope you got your Bibles open to Genesis 26. And in verse 1, we read there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, don't go there. Don't go to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. And here it is. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Now keep in mind, keep in mind, at this point, they're living in the land, but they're living amongst the Canaanites. They don't, they don't have the land. They don't rule the land. They, Isaac's family is just living there in the land. They're outsiders. But God promises that he will give that land to Isaac's family. But to which son of Isaac? We continue looking for the Messiah. So Isaac has two sons. Firstborn son is Esau. The secondborn son is Jacob. Now, as we discussed when we looked at the birth of Jacob and Esau in that day, the firstborn son received a place of honor and esteem in the family. So we would think that we ought to be looking for the Messiah in the line of Esau because he is the firstborn. But things in God's economy are not always the same as they are in man's economy. And as we find out, actually, through Jacob's deceit and through Jacob's conniving, he actually gets the blessing of the firstborn after already having gotten the birthright of the firstborn from his brother. So now, we are looking for the Messiah in the line of Jacob. Now, Jacob leaves the land because of his sin, right? He gets in trouble with his brother Esau. Esau wants to kill him. And so his mother says, you need to leave. So he leaves and he goes away from the land. And eventually he comes back to the land, but he comes back to the land with not one wife, but two wives and two concubines and 11 soon-to-be 12 sons. Now, one of these sons takes up the majority of the pages of the rest of Genesis. Now, at this point, we are at Genesis 37. He was sold into slavery by his own brothers. In slavery, he rises in the ranks of his master's home, but then because of righteous living, he ends up in prison. He continues to fear the Lord, and once again, he succeeds and get, gets called upon to interpret the dreams of the Pharaoh, which he does, which then, as a matter of fact, leads to his appointment as prime minister of Egypt. 
He's finally reunited with his brothers. He relocates his family to Egypt out of the promised land to save their lives yet again because of a terrible famine. And his name is Joseph. Is he the Messiah? Well, that brings us to Genesis 47. We come to the end of Genesis, and we might be tempted to think that Joseph might be the Messiah. But as we saw last week, Joseph dies, so it can't be Joseph. But do we want to look in the line of Joseph? Because God has promised his people, sorry, God has chosen his people, and he has also promised his people that he will give them the land. Now, right now, they're not in the land, and right now, they're not an especially huge nation yet. They've grown, but they're not a nation yet. Uh, and, and here they are living in, in Egypt, and we wonder, who is it? Who are we to look for the Messiah through? Well, if you remember, if you've been here the last several weeks, you know, we've studied the life of Joseph, and clearly Scripture seems to exalt Joseph, doesn't it? Joseph seems to be an exemplary character in Scripture. Joseph, some have even argued that the Scripture says very little next to next, nothing negative about him. Now, that's debatable, but I don't think it's debatable that Joseph is one who is exalted and lifted up. I mean, his brothers hated him, and he had compassion on them. His brothers plotted his murder, and he only wanted what was best for his family. His brothers lived their lives for themselves, and Joseph lived his life to serve others. So, should we keep looking for the Messiah in the line of Joseph? Well, no. Joseph's not the firstborn. So, we, we shouldn't be looking. I mean, Joseph is the 11th born. We're not going to look for the Messiah in the line of Joseph. So maybe what we should do is we should look to the line of the firstborn, and that gets us to Genesis 49. This is where we're going to find our text for this morning, Genesis 49. And here, Jacob is pronouncing a blessing upon his sons, but, you know, it's not really like everything's good, right? It's not like, you know, you be blessed because of this and you be blessed because of this. It's sort of a, the last words for each son, and he begins by talking about Reuben. That's his firstborn. But Reuben, no, it can't be Reuben because Reuben slept with his father's concubine. So Reuben disqualified himself. So it can't be Reuben. And we get down to verse 5. It can't be Simeon and Levi, the second and third born, because those guys are known for violence. You want to know about that? You can go back to Genesis 38. So that brings us to Jacob's fourthborn. And that brings us to our text for this morning. Genesis chapter 49 and verses 8 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord this day. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, uh, before we go any further, let me make clear that we're well into our sermon at this point. Don't be thinking, my dear, he just read the text. We got a long way to go. We are well into the sermon already as we continue to look for the Messiah. And there is much that could be said about these few verses here I just read. But I'm only going to focus on one little phrase. One little phrase, and it is in verse 10. And it is in verse 10 where we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, I don't know how much you know about scepters, but a scepter represents rule and authority. And the one who holds the scepter has rule and authority. So the point that Jacob is making here, and he is hinting at this, right? If Genesis was all you had, this might be tough, but we don't just have all of Genesis. We have the whole Bible. But what the author of Genesis, Moses, is hinting at here is that now we are to look for the Messiah in the line of Judah because God's people have been promised uh, that they will become a great nation. They, will, they were promised a place, and now we find out that they will have a king. A nation needs a king, and they need one to rule over them. So it's from this point on that not only are we looking for a Messiah, but we are looking for a king and we are looking for him in the line of Judah. Now, when we get out of the book of Genesis, let's just make this clear. Genesis ends on a cliffhanger, does it not? Right? Genesis is a cliffhanger. Because we get to the end of Genesis. Okay, there's, there's 12 sons, you know, and there's their kids. And so there, there's a lot of people. I'm not so sure I'd classify that as a nation. They're not in the land. And they have a foreign king ruling over them. Right? A bit of a cliffhanger, but we're not going to stop there. We're going to carry on. So we get to the book of Exodus, and we find that in Exodus, God sends Moses, and he tells us first, though, about what had happened while they were in Egypt. What actually happened was they became a nation. We read in verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So we see there in Exodus, God's people, or sorry, in the end of Genesis, God's people becoming a nation. They're becoming a nation, but yet again, as is usually the case, there is a problem. The problem is that there's a new king uh, in Egypt, one that doesn't especially like the Israelites. And so he decides to enslave them and put them to work so that they will not rise up against them. So God sends Moses, and through Moses, he works to deliver his people out of slavery. He sends them out of slavery, he gives them the law, and he tells them to go in and take the land. But they're too afraid. So they get punished for that, and a new generation raises up, and God sends Moses a successor, namely Joshua, and Joshua leads them into the land. Now they go into the land, and they take most of the land. They don't destroy everybody in the land, not as they were supposed to, but they take most of the land, and now they have the land. They're becoming a nation, but they continue to turn away from God, to disobey God, and so God sends them enemies to attack them. 
No, they get in the midst of problems and they cry out to God and God sends them a deliverer, a, a Messiah of sorts, uh, someone that we called a judge. And the judge was somewhat of a military ruler and he would come and he would help them defeat their enemies and give them some measure of rule. And this just kept going on and on and on. They kept turn away from God and God sends their enemies and they cry out to God and God sends a judge. And this goes on and on and on until we get to the end of the book of Judges. Here we are. Sorry, I didn't keep us moving along. Okay, so you got to flip forward here. You know, it's great. You don't even know. You, just, you don't even have to know the books of the Bible. You just keep following along and you get to Judges here. And that brings us to the end of that period. And we find out that this whole business of sending a judge each time is not going to fly. It's just not working out. And so then we get to the book of Ruth. And, and we get to the book of Ruth and we meet a widow named Naomi. Naomi, uh, and again, guess what? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And Naomi ends up losing everything in the famine. She loses her husband, and she loses her two sons, and then she loses one of her daughter-in-laws who goes home, and her other daughter-in-law, Ruth, goes with her. And they go home, and there, Ruth finds a spouse, and they get married, and they have a son, and his name is Obed. Now, once again, at the end of Ruth, there is a strategically placed genealogy. Can you hear it again? Don't ignore the genealogies. It's in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 18. And this is what we read. Uh, now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. That's, that's Ruth's husband. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, I know, you know, if you've been to Sunday school, you've been around here, you know David, but hold on a second, let's back up a minute, okay? Who did that genealogy start with? It started with Perez. Now, who's Perez? This is where things get exciting. So let's skip back again. Now, hold your finger there in Ruth, we're going to come back here. But let's go back to Genesis 46. In Genesis 46, we're learning about Jacob's family. Okay, he's talking about all his sons. In Genesis 46, let me start at verse 8, and let me just read you some of Jacob's uh, family of, of what we learned about his descendants. So these are the names of the descendants of Israel. Remember that Israel is another name for Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. So first of all, there's a firstborn, Reuben. Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. Don't worry about Reuben. We're not following Reuben. Then there's the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. But we're not following Reuben, or we're not following Simeon. So now we got verse 11, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Then, verse 12, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, and Perez. All right, then, we're moving along well here as we continue looking for the Messiah. You see, Perez was Judah's son, and generations later, from Judah's son Perez would come David. Now, let's not get, out, get ahead of ourselves yet. At this point, a nation has been born, and a nation has been delivered. And that brings us to, I don't know what page you're on, I'm on page 287. That brings us to 1 Samuel. 
Now, at 1 Samuel, we find out that the judges thing hasn't worked. All the other nations have kings, and so Israel says to God, we want a king. And God says, all right, I'll give you a king, and I'll give you a king just like you want. And so along comes Saul, and Saul was big in stature and manly, and they said, we'll take Saul. So Saul became king. That didn't work out too well, so God then gave them a king of his own choosing, and that, of course, was David. So now a monarchy is born. David, a descendant of Judah, now sits on the throne over God's people. Now after David, his son Solomon took the throne, and after Solomon, trouble came to the nation, for they split off into two factions. Both factions went through several kings, and both kingdoms continued to rebel against God and worship idols. Thus, in 722 BC, one of the kingdoms is exiled, and in 586 BC, Judah, the other kingdom, is also exiled. The nation of Israel was gone, gone, until years later when God returned a remnant of his people to their land. Now, Israel was never the same again. You know, throughout that period, we go through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. God sent prophets to his people to tell them to turn back to him, but they didn't. And so, as I said, in 722 and 586 BC, he exiled them from their lands, and that gets us through to the end of the Old Testament. So now God's people have become a nation, but they've been destroyed as a nation. They've been, re re they've been returned back to their land. So they're still sort of a nation, and they're still in their land, but they don't have a king. And that brings us to the beginning of the New Testament, to yet another strategically placed genealogy. So uh, a nation has been born and delivered, and now a monarchy is born and destroyed. That takes us to first, from 1 Samuel all the way to Malachi, and this brings us to Matthew chapter 1. Now, this genealogy here is divided into three. Okay, the first part of the genealogy covers from Abraham to David. So you see Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, so on and so on and so forth. Look at, you know, we follow on, we get to Judah, and then we get to Perez, and we carry on, you know, and then all of a sudden it starts sounding like the end of Ruth, because we've got Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nation, and so on, until we get to Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Who was David again? He was the king, the king of God's people. So that's the first section. Uh, the second section starts with David. Okay, so David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. I'm not going to read through all of this, and, and we get through to the end of there. And then Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So now we've got from Abraham, the choosing of God's people, all the way to David. Okay, and then we've got from David all the way until the deportation. Now I'm going to read for you verses 12 through 16 of this genealogy. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, 
And Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. <laughs> I don't know about you, that tuckered me out. We just did an entire walk through the whole of the Old Testament and brought us to, guess what? We found them! The Messiah! Jesus was born, who is also called Messiah. I know your Bible says Christ. That's the Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah. It means the same thing, the anointed one. This is the one. From Adam to Seth, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to David, to Jesus. We've found the Messiah. He lived the perfect life which Adam did not. He preached a message of repentance and faith. He healed the sick and cast out demons. He was crucified on a Roman cross and bore the wrath of the holy God deserved by all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ. He was laid in a borrowed tomb. Friday. Saturday. Sunday. And he walked out of the tomb alive. And as one theologian said, that changes everything. He is the Messiah who defeated the devil, death and sin once and for all. He ascended to the right hand of God where he reigns as the king of the universe and he will return one day. And he will make all things new, including the heavens and earth. And all those who are his will live with him for all eternity, never again to wrestle with the flesh, never again to experience sorrow, pain, struggling, suffering, or death. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is Jesus Christ. And through him, paradise is regained. There was paradise because of man, paradise was lost. Because of Jesus, paradise is regained. And that is what we're here to celebrate this morning, the Lord's Supper and what Christ has done for us. Let's pray.